hello there, friends, comrades, co-disciples. And, you know, in the spirit of Zerla today, we're also going to be co-creators, co-workers, co-lovers. we got a lot of withness and goodness to be uh, kind of reflecting on today. So I'm excited for our conversation. Um, I have a wonderful guest that um, we'll introduce in a little bit here. But real quick, if you enjoy the show, if you find it meaningful, if you'd like other folks to be able to connect with the show, con- you know, consider becoming a, a monthly contributor, a, a monthly supporter, a, a single dollar a month would mean $12 in an entire year supporting uh, this podcast and its content and um, the work that um, I'm trying to do with it. So I really appreciate anyone who uh, who's willing to do that. Um, folks who have been doing it for a long time, for the almost, you know, over uh, about two years now, and then folks who have just recently joined in the last uh, two months. So huge thanks to you all, and I, again, if you're if you're interested, I'd, I'd really great uh, I'd greatly appreciate it at Patreon.com/slash/FaithInCapital. Okay, but today we are talking um, about a book called "To Work and to Love: A Theology of Creation" by Dorothy or Dorothea Zerla. I think that's how you pronounce it in German. With a wonderful guest whose name is Isaac Vijegas, a pastor here in North Carolina. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And consider getting this book into the hands of uh, of people in church. Cool. All right, y'all. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined on the pod with Isaac Vijegas, a pastor here in North Carolina, and we're going to engage a book by mystic liberation feminist theologian. I think uh, she's she's German, and so I think you pronounce it like Dorothea Zerla. Um, and the book is called To Work and to Love, A Theology of Creation. Um, Isaac, uh, as we've said before, you know, I, I'm really excited to, to actually finally get to chat with you. And I've admired some of your work that I've been able to see from afar um, for a while now. And just kind of moving to North Carolina, I was I moved here. And I was like, OK, who's doing like interesting work? And I don't know how or, or when or where, but I was like, oh, this guy, Vijegas, he, he's doing really neat work. So um, uh, I, I really appreciate you. So yeah, why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce yourself before we start diving into the book. Um, introduce yourself, tell us what you've been up to. And then uh, I, you recommended this book to me. Um, and you had that in, interesting kind of note about how uh, a professor uh, recommended it to you back in seminary. But yeah, so I'd also like to hear about what about this book in particular speaks to you. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Chase, for having me. Um, grateful for this opportunity to do a little theology here with you. Um, I've appreciated your podcast, listening on, and I, yeah, really appreciate the way you take seriously uh, workers' lives and like everything from union organizing to just the way that work really saps the life out of us. So I very much appreciate um, what you offer in the world and glad to be here with you. Um, yeah, so, uh, this book, um, I first encountered that, oh, I should just say, uh, we were just talking off air here, but I'm just coming back from the border, U.S.-Mexico border, um, so my mind is, is there in a lot of ways right now, just, uh, doing immigrant justice work, volunteered at some migrant shelters, and, um, yeah, encountering the, the violence of the border, um, watching people's lives being torn apart. So 
thinking through that. As, as so I'm bringing that to our conversation and this book, uh, to which I, I find her being a wonderful conversation partner because she she's definitely someone who cares about how our economic practices, economic lives affect people everywhere. So, um, yeah, I feel like this is good processing time for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this book was first uh, recommended to me by when I was in seminary by a professor um, at the time, Willie Jennings, who I think I was just being an annoying student asking so many <laughs> questions. And he was just like, you know what? I think you probably should read this book. It might help you a little bit. And he was he was right. So this book comes to me via the pastoral care of Professor Willie Jennings. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah, and yeah, we've all we've all been, and I will probably forever be that annoying student who's just constantly asking questions to people. So <laughs> yeah. that's fun. That's cool. And uh, you're doing some ministry. Where at again? Yeah, so I'm in um, North Carolina in Durham Chapel Hill area. Um, pastor of Mennonite Church involved in yeah all the things that a pastor's involved in um also involved in uh social justice community justice solidarity work with song southerners on new ground um it's kind of my political home abolitionist uh black queer-led abolitionist organization um and then i'm also the uh, president of the North Carolina Council of Churches. So trying to figure out what it means to be in that, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely like moderate, liberal, mainline. Uh, that's It's beyond mainline, actually. Um, uh, bureaucratic advocacy group in our state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, does anything like kind of initially come to mind that connects your experience this past week um, uh, along the borderlines and the the contents of this book? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I should say um, my experience of Sole has been like all over the place in terms mm-hmm. of her, her work. And um, I don't think she uses this phrase in this book, but I've, I latched onto it when she first mentioned it in a different um, piece of writing. But she talks about um, she comes up, she's great at coming up with just phrases that become so meaningful, at least to me. Mm-hmm. And one of them is uh, what she calls apartheid theology. Um, and what she means by it is this way that some theology is done without any concern uh, for the material lives of uh, that we are involved in just as human beings. You know, the way that like, uh, you know, the food we eat comes from somewhere or like our economic practices involve us in the lives of people far away. Um, and so she she is she's she has an allergic reaction to um, the way that theology is done as a way of extricating the theologian from all of those material relations. And I would say that uh, that is what I think about a lot when I go to the border and are involved in any kind of work related to undocumented people is that so much of theology um, is a form of of ignoring or a way of hiding from um, the way that our lives are implicated in all of these other lives. So I'd say that's something I'm definitely thinking about as as we come to this book. Um, I, she doesn't exactly mention that, but she does talk about um, what she's, I mean, her language at the time is the way that um, uh, our lives in the West, in the North, um, are bound up with people's lives in the South, in the third world. Um, 
and she refuses to ignore that. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and it, it, unfortunately, it's incredibly rare to see the production of theology in the centers of imperialism and capitalism, right? In the U.S., Canada, and Europe, talk about theology and spirituality that, like, ultimately, or perhaps primarily, speaks to the relations, first of all, the living conditions in neo-colonized and colonized parts of the world, and also, like, the systems, like imperialism, capitalism, colonialism, that produce the, the, the experiences um, of, the, of the masses. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, exactly. And, and hearing you talk also made me think of some of the things that we're actually going to talk about, kind of her emphasis on the relation between creation and liberation theology. Liberation theology, not like the tradition that emerges, right, in, in Central and South America, but um, creation theology that centers the material liberation of of human and non-human creatures in the planet. And, and I thought that was really, really interesting my first engagement with Zerla was actually in a mystic uh, mysticism course. And I, I going into it, I just, mm. I had no interest personally in, in mysticism because personally at the time, even though I didn't have the language of like, well, there's like uh, more like right wing, there's liberal stuff. And then there's more materialist analysis. I definitely was in a camp where I was, I was tired of abstract theology that had nothing to do. That was very egoistic and kind of self-centered and, and just consumed with how one feels about themselves in the world. But I had a professor was like, well, check out Zerla, right? She's a, there. Uh, she's a mystic and she's incredibly kind of committed to liberation uh, theology work. And I read the silent cry. That's another book I'd recommend uh, to listeners really it's, it's spiritually deep, but it is grounded in the material lived reality of the world. Um, so anyways, lots of cool stuff here. Yeah, just uh, I found the quote that I was thinking of. Oh, also, just uh, the, the silent cry. Yeah, that book is so good. I mean, you don't understand what she means by mysticism until you realize that Thomas Munzer is a mystic for her. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. like she's a rev like he's a revolutionary mystic of the 16th century. So to think about for her the way that like revolution and mysticism are bound up together is a very different kind of mystical mystical perspective than we're usually used to don't you think absolutely yeah and that's actually where she ends and so hopefully we'll kind of hopefully that's where we can wrap up this conversation is yeah. that conversation on um, love and revolution so cool yeah let's go ahead and, and get started uh in chapter one she kind of lays out this like broad idea about why she is writing this book. In my opinion, that's kind of how I interpret it. And so I just mm -hmm. wanted to name it and see if anything popped up to you. For Zerla, you know, she's writing this book out of a desire to do good work and to make good love. Um, and she articulates that in the language of she, she wants to praise and revere, and she says worship creation, including the God of creation. Um, but she understands that in her language, uh, that that requires the this the kind of right relationship, this reverence, this love for creation and the God of creation requires us to battle exterminism. That's her language. And I think generally, you know, um, what she is saying is capitalism and imperialism. She names this like undoing of creation. Uh, she also uses the language uh, of the final solution. And so it's you know, you, you, you might go into a lot of Bible studies at churches or even kind of creation-centered theology classes in seminary, and you don't start with 
the extermination of the world, right? The final solution. And But that's where she, she has this understanding that if we don't do something now, if we don't start living in a different way, you know, not just individually, right, but collectively, then, you know, there will be no creation <laughs> to revere. There will be no God of creation to be in relationship with. And I think that's an excellent and, like, really powerful place to, to start. Well, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great place to start. I um, I mean, just one line, I, exactly what you're saying. She has this line in that, in that first chapter, choosing life in the face of death means participating in creation through love and work. And it feels like that's kind of a thesis uh, in the book that like exactly what you're saying. We have uh, inaugurated this mass extinction event, this ecological crisis. I mean, she's naming this stuff in the early 80s. I mean, I think we should be aware of that. Like this yeah. is... 1984, you know, is, right? Yeah, 84, yeah. So, I mean, she has been worried about this since uh, since the beginning of her of her theological work, which I think is important to mm. to notice. Um, but also for her, like you're saying, it's, it's related to war, too. I mean, the fact mm -hmm. that, like, the human species has created weapons of mass destruction that um, imagines the end of the world. So, and she's like, this is what we need to be taking seriously. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. And the way that like our lives need to be participating in something else. And we do that through our work life, through the way we love one another, and that those two are bound up. Yeah, chapter two and four, she actually says some really great things that I just loved about like responsibility and accountability. And so kind of like in that vein, you know, she doesn't say like just human beings in general, right? Like poor and the rich, right? Worker and capitalist, um, colonizer and colonized. Uh, like we're all kind of equally responsible. She says like this project of exterminism includes three things. And this is her language, rape of the earth, which she includes pollution. Two, as you said, war against the poor, um, just mass starvation of people um, throughout the history of capitalism. Capitalism depends upon the mass starvation of, of huge swaths of people. And then the third, as you said, um, nuclear arms threat. And she you know, talked about this arms buildup, um, which is interesting Yeah, and to think about all the way back in the 80s. This arms buildup, uh, she names the centers of imperialism and capitalism. That's who, who's responsible for the the final solution, the the potential extermination of the beloved creation. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that, yeah, those things are like front and center. Um, in chapter two, are we going to chapter two? Can we just float around? Oh, yeah, all these chapters? yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, great, just, great. Um, we're just hanging out. Yeah. But yeah, along those lines, in terms of her outlook, I just, I'm so, this, I mean, the title of chapter two is just amazing. In the beginning was liberation. You know, like that's, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's just such a good line, you know, like that'll preach. Um, and uh, just to note her biblical exegesis, like her hermeneutic here, how she's reading the Bible. I just think it's really interesting that she points out the she turns to like more historical critical, like situating the, the Hebrew Bible and saying that um, the decisive event was actually Exodus. So you need to start reading the Bible with the story of Exodus as your lens then you can understand Genesis 1 and 2 and how that is a story of liberation. Um, so 
that the God of the Bible has always been um, and always will be the God who set Israel free from uh, their slaveholders. Um, yeah, so I think that of empire. So yeah, I think that's important. Like, it's just a very interesting way of reading uh, your way into the Bible to say, actually, the, the primary story is not, or you don't understand the beginning of the Bible unless you understand that the primary story for the people of God is uh, liberation, the liberation that happens through the Exodus. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed that part too. And there were some interesting things like um, I thought we could kind of pull out from that. On one hand, I think that, you know, as you're saying, the identity is saying that the Genesis, the, uh, the, the initiator of who we are as a people is our relationship with a liberating God and this like work of liberation. And that's interesting, right? Because we have this, we have these several poems. We have these two creation myths at the very beginning of the scriptures. And unfortunately, they're perhaps like primarily read as apolitical poems. Right, um, right? exactly. They have nothing to do with politics. They have nothing to do with class struggle. They have nothing to do with people being dehumanized and or slaughtered or conquered or enslaved, right? Um, when really, I think what uh, she is arguing is that there are no creation stories. There are no creation myths. Um, there are... There, there is no emergence of like uh, Israel, you know, the, the kingdom of Israel and Judah. Uh, they don't come together without this, uh, this story of liberation and this, this historical, like real material project. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly. I just, I mean, this is, yeah. Yeah, it's so true. I, um, I should also just say at this point, like I've, what is what I've appreciated most about Zola's work is that I find her to be a an important conversation partner because she she names the world, the injustice of the world, the violence of the world, the um, of our capitalist global economy. Um, and I am with her like all the way on all those things. And then when it comes to more like theological concerns or her theological solutions to the concerns, at that point, I find myself being like, oh, am I on board or not on board? Um, I'd be interested. You, you definitely know a whole lot more uh, of Marx than I do. So when she does like more of Marxist analysis, I wonder if maybe you find yourself in the same position. Um, but just in terms of this biblical hermeneutic, like on the one hand, I appreciate the move to Exodus as the lens uh, through which to understand Genesis 1 and 2. On the other hand, I don't think you need to do that. I mean, I, you know, she does it and it's fine. But it's actually interesting later in chapter four, she actually makes a, she does a theological reading of Genesis one and two that doesn't need uh, to start with Exodus, where she just reads the story of creation as, um, as basically God speaking life into nothingness. Um, and then she says to become involved in the work of co-creation means dealing with the nothingness that threatens to swallow us up. Mm. And so for her, I mean, it very much is this reading of like just a, a reading of the story from the beginning that says um, in the same way that there is this nothingness that eats up our lives and God speaks life into it and God's a God of life. Um, that's our condition right now. 
that there is this nothingness called capitalism, called uh, violence, called militarism, whatever, that's eating up our lives. And yet God speaks, speaks a word of life in the midst of it. So mm. all that to say, like, um, her hermeneutics are all over the place, and I'm all for that. <laughs> um, and, you know, whatever works in one situation to get to the point feels right to me. Um, I, in general, tend not to go with uh, using um, historical critical as, like, my way into a text. I kind of just like a literary approach, but I totally see how it works for her. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So I... I am a historical materialist, but I don't think, I think theology is like a different project and we're, and we're asking different kinds of questions than when I'm asking like socially scientific questions or questions to do with like uh, class, race, gender, sexuality, right? Um, they're, they're not inseparable, you know, they're not separated, uh, but again, I'm, I'm just doing different questions here. Right. So, so one of the, one of the things that actually turned me off a little bit at front was when I was reading this for the first time, this the second chapter, um, I, I'm pretty sure that um, archaeologically we found out that, you know, there never was like a an actual exodus from uh, an actual like Egypt somewhere at some point, right? There's just no archaeological evidence. And, and I thought that she was actually suggesting that there really was a historical event. And so it was kind of this emphasis on it was kind of her materialism coming out and saying because because this actually happened and this is the uh, this is the primary event of the people um, that's where you know the people's identity has to be grounded in and yeah and I think that's dangerous unfortunately because again uh, the the Bible and I may be wrong you know she might be saying no 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 I'm not I'm not saying that right it's um, the vast majority of it's myth um, but I do think kind of like what I took from her is, is saying that theology has to be about history. Um, it has to be about human beings, lived, actual human beings who are, who are bodied, who are kind of enfleshed and live day-to-day -day lives in space and time rather than about abstract ideas that start to escape our everyday lives and the systems and structures that organize us. Um, within the world. So I think that is kind of the main important point that I, I took away from you. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's exactly right. Um, and yeah, so to the just to say one more thing about this, uh, I, what I like my biblical hermeneutic is basically like the Bible has been read for liberation in all sorts of ways. And I don't want to tell anyone who picks up the Bible to, to make them think that they need something else in order to read it as a form of liberation. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be like, all right, you need to understand, you need to read like Exodus first because that's the primary event. Or you need to understand that all of this was written in exile is actually what we think now. Um, yeah. And you need to understand it as exilic uh, text or, you know, whatever. I just want to be like, hey, there are no rules. Read the Bible. Let's work for liberation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that makes sense because the texts weren't written chronologically, right? right. And... And I don't think they were ever meant to be like shared or sung or spoken or listened to chronologically, right? There's no really real order. Um, but that project of writing it down and assembling these papers and then making a book, it does kind of seem like, oh, 
well, now there's a certain way to read the scripture and to engage when really there's just like this really dynamic pluralistic voice, right? It's, it's a, it's a right. fucking library yeah. <laughs> with incredible exactly. stories all over the place. So yeah, that's cool. That's great. But yeah, but in terms of what you were saying, what her point, and I think this is exactly right, is that you can't, like, theology for her emerges in the dust, Mm -hmm. in our, like, material lives. Um, And any, and if we're not wrestling with our material lives, um, then we're doing something other than what the Bible is is for. Um, And so, yeah, so that, that, you you just talked about like coming from dust and being earthy. So in that third chapter made from dust, um, I mean, she just has this great line, like the claim of Christian theology is that we are created, willed and loved by God. Yet we were made from dust, a theology that ignores our being made from dust continues an idealistic flight from reality and becomes sooner or later an ideological superstructure separated from the fabric of our lives. So I think that's um, that's what she is all about, you know, this materialist theology that refuses this flight from the yeah. actual lives uh, that we have, that we're involved in. Um, theology has to have a word of life to say in the dust. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be escapist. and. Right. And, I, and you're absolutely right. So here's this emphasis on, you know, she names materialist theology. And, and I, I like, it's interesting to think about like the, the title of that chapter, right? It's uh, Made from Dust, right? So chapter three, Made from Dust. And and I think one of the main thing that she's trying to, um, to get at is that this materialist theology affirms creation, right? But it's in opposition to what she names with Marxist analysis of, potential exchange value of creation itself. She, she wants to affirm the value of creation that is not about profitable value. It's not um, right. the exchange value. It's, it's on one hand, it could be use value. Um, I, so Marxist analysis talks about exchange value and use value. And one example, right, everyone knows, is that you have a house and houses in our world today, we're, we don't produce them for their use value, right? Their use value would be um, homemaking, shelter, like physical shelter, um, community building, uh, security. That's those things. That's why you would use a house. That's why most of us would, you know, we, we try and use a, an apartment or a house. Um, but the primary reason why houses are built today are their exchange value, how they can be bought and sold so that capitalists uh, developers, investors, and landlords can make massive profits off it endlessly. So yeah, so what she wants to say is creation itself, whether, whether it's a human body, a worker, or the trees I see outside my window, or my dog bear, you know, um, <laughs> or yeah, so just, just life in general. Everything's being commodified, turned into how can I take this water, literally, right? Uh, the Great Lakes. Um, how can I take this uh, resource in, uh, say, Ghana. How can I take this, uh, extract this resource on the along the uh, border of the United States and Mexico right now? Um, how can I uh, oil right? Um, rather than seeing them as ex- you know what they can be exchanged for and and profit it off of, she wants to say creation. Sh- has value in and of itself beyond kind of what we would prescribe to it, particularly capitalism. Yeah, and along those lines, I mean, she offers a provocation almost 
uh, where she turns to, um, so it's not just like, uh, let's, it's not like, let's get an adequate description of the world and theology helps us do that. It's like, she turns to the way that um, this God, this God of liberation is a um, provocation, is an affront to that capitalist system of ownership. So she has this awesome line where she turns to, uh, this is page 28, where she turns to the campesinos in Latin America. Yeah. I mean, so just to say, so her conversation partners are global. I mean, I think that's really important. Um, so she, you know, she's living in Germany, I think in Cologne, also living in New York City, teaching at Union. Um, but in because of her activism work, part of all kinds of organizing work throughout the globe. So those are her, she's not gonna ignore those conversation partners. So, you know, she just like notices what she's heard in uh, among like pe peasant revolts, which are usually land reform uh, movements in Latin America, um, the way that they use Psalm 23 as like this thing, like, you know, the earth is the Lord's, which means it doesn't belong to you all who are like claiming ownership of it, you know? Um, so I think that's like a perfect example of her, the her at her hermeneutic in the best possible way, where she like listens to liberation movements says, hey, you know what? They're using this Bible passage, the earth is the Lord's, as a provocation against uh, capitalist exploitation. Um, I think that's just brilliant. She has those kind of brilliant mo moments throughout the book. Yeah. One of the examples, you you talk about the, her conversation partners and her thinking theologically in light of imperialism um, and capitalism. And she, this, this, in this chapter, I loved on page 31, she, she gets so angry at this sermon. Oh, right. By what she yes. calls, uh, she names a well-dressed, elegant woman in a cathedral in New York City. And I, uh, I'm not going to read through this whole thing, but basically some probably white woman went on a cruise to South America and she came back and she was telling stories about the beauty of God's creation. And I want to start off by saying, listen, this is how I was raised too. And I think actually, I think it's still deeply ingrained within me, right? To when I walk out, whether I'm going for a walk in the park, um, whether I am traveling across the U.S. to go visit my parents or, um, you know, Ashley, uh, my partner and I, we like to go camping. We like to go to the beach. Um, when we see... Uh, nature, whether it's, you know, trees or the ocean or the mountains, there's this something within me that says, wow, this has nothing to do with politics, right? The, the beauty here is just simply about God in creation and it's apolitical, has nothing to do with colonialism, right? <laughs> it has nothing, it's untouched by capitalism or patriarchy and white supremacy. And yet what she, what she just like rages against is this elegant dressed woman's sermon about how she was consuming the these this experience and this kind of beauty that without recognition without even mention of the brutal disgusting history of colonialism that made that experience possible um and, and I don't think she I don't think she wants us to say, listen, everywhere you go, you have to be like, you know, well, people were slaughtered there. Right. Um, I, I don't think that's what she's getting at. But I do think that she she's just recognizing that 
you know, broadly, there isn't a recognition. Right, right, like the, mo the vast majority of Christians in the U.S., we don't recognize that we, right, like personally, I'm a settler, right? I'm a settler in a, in a fucking colony. And all of the even working class privileges that many working class people have in this uh, country, um, it, it's built on the neo-colonization uh, uh, of vast regions of the world. The crushing uh, of any kind of possibility of democracy and autonomy, economically, politically, in in Central and South America, Africa, you know, parts of the you know, uh, general of the Middle East and, and Southeast Asia. So, anyways, I, I thought that was really beautiful and powerful that she was like, "This isn't creation theology. You can't just talk about the fish or the ocean or the sky on your fucking cruise." So, <laughs> yeah. and, and call well, that, yeah, call that, like, creation theology, so. Right, no, that's, a, yeah, and, and she goes on from that story uh, through a great um, little scene from one of Karl Marx's journals where he notices the way that, like, land and resources are stolen from the people who live there um, as part of commodification. Um, and then she calls, you know, what all this um, is about is ecological imperialism. You know, that that's, that's her language. Like, this is ecological imperialism. It can be rooted in your desire for the beauty of it all, of nature, whatever, and you want to own it or you want to enjoy it on a cruise. Um, but it still is a form of imperialism. Um, yeah, I just love that. Like, she just gets to the heart of the matter. She refuses to let people, refuses to let us be comfortable um, in our exploitative lives. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, to understand our role, uh, I mean, it's about being co-creators is, is her language here. Um, to understand our role as co-creators is not like this sense, it all, like I create something and it belongs to me, but it's it's this participation in a liberatory, uh, it's like to return what doesn't, what should belong to all of us, to all of us. You know, like mm -hmm. it, that's what co-creation means because we were born into God's, liberative act in the world so uh we don't create in order to possess we create in order to redistribute basically mm. i mean uh, is that right like redistribute or i mean return to to whom all of this belongs to yeah and it would be interesting to kind of engage her on her understanding of decolonization but unfortunately she doesn't you know really go into that too much but she definitely does emphasize that this is stolen land and that if we are to, as she you know, starts off in this first chapter, get to a place of reverence and worship and adoration for creation and the God of creation, then we are going to have to combat, um, we're, we're going to have to become co-creators. And that means undoing evil, undoing these systems of, of death and domination. Another, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you're right. She doesn't really do like decolonialism in general. But what I was, I mean, this time reading the book again uh, to prepare for this conversation, I was struck by actually the way that she incorporates um, native voices, indigenous people's voices. So even in that Made from Dust chapter, she has this line where she quotes of Native American chief Seattle, um, who said in 1854, the earth does not belong to the human being, but the human being belongs to the earth, um, which she relates to this line from the Psalms that the Campesinos are using, that the earth is the Lord's. So, yes. I mean, it's just interesting that, I mean, in the early 80s, she's still like, again, her conversation partners are 
um, indigenous voices, you know, like that's part of her theological world. Um, I mean, that's something I think. Absolutely. Especially even, you know, even for socialists at that time, because it's an interesting moment in history to identify explicitly uh, as socialists, not just in the religious realm, but even just kind of across the world. And she's grounding her, her politics and her theology, again, in relation to uh, the most hyper-exploited and colonized people at, at that time. Um, so I, I think that's a really, really important insight uh, for us. Uh, another cool part I liked about this chapter was she talked a little bit about kind of these postures and moods of despair and lack of faith. She engages in Mark 9, um, a story about an epileptic boy. And I thought that was really insightful and meaningful for me in that I think in our world today, you know, whether we're thinking about our coworkers or, you know, whether you participate in like a mutual aid group or um, are trying to do some organizing uh, with some folks, whether you're in, you know, in your church community, when we, we talk to a lot of people, despair and nihilism. I actually, a coworker of mine today, you know, they keep on telling me, they're like, well, I'm just a little more nihilistic than you. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, well, well, I think there's a little more to it, but I get what you're saying. And you know, what they are saying is like, I just don't believe anything can happen. I don't think fundamental transformation can happen. And this story of the epileptic boy in Mark 9, right? Jesus is basically like, listen, you have got to have the fucking faith. If you, like, um, why are you waiting on me? Why are you looking to me? Why are you asking me? Um, Transformation is only going to happen. Healing on a mass level, not just one person, but on a mass scale can happen. And it has to happen. But you have got to fucking believe. You have got to believe not just with your mind, but with your body. And and I, I don't think it's like this shallow... Uh, we're not really going to kind of analyze the conditions and create a good analysis. And um, I, I, you know, I, this is where like historical materialism um, and scientific socialism come into play. We're not just going to make up this random idea and maybe uh, uh, spontaneously have revolution or, or, you know, spontaneously combust our way into a world of communism, right? It takes serious um, study and, and, and discipline, but but I do think it takes conviction that, you know, for me, I'm thinking about landlords here in Charlotte. In the face of some of the most powerful landlords that the people of Charlotte have ever faced, you don't have a choice. You don't get to roll over, right? People don't get to just roll over. And uh, we have to fight. Um, or, or it doesn't happen, right? Or the transformation doesn't happen. So anyways, I, I, I always love that. Any, anytime there's a, a part about real hope and real conviction in the face of moods and tendencies of despair and lack of faith. Yeah, no, that that gets, yeah, just one line to back up what you're saying here, which she's just so good at these lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in that same chapter, I guess we're in chapter four. Um, a spirituality of creation reminds us that we were born for joy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's just such a good line like we were born for joy i mean for all the reasons that you're saying you know like that a reminder that what what it means for us to be alive is to experience joy that that was 
that is who we are. And anyone who diminishes that, I mean, is working against God's will. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I, I just she's so good, and it's a conviction for her, um, as you're saying, um, rooted in what she believes about this God of liberation and what God wants uh, for us. And this is where, like, I am so impressed with her, um, with her joy, with her hope, and why I need to continue to read her because. I don't feel that way all the time, <laughs> considering uh, this. I mean, just coming back from the border and seeing like how much border wall was built over the past three years, um, and how many people. I, I think last year, the the most people died in the desert on record. I think it was like 221 yeah. people. Um, well, that was found. I mean, who knows? Um, yeah. But just I'm like, it's getting worse. You know, like yeah. it is getting worse, and um, I need people like Sole to remind me yes. that we were created for joy, and that God is on our side, and that there is a source of hope and love in this world that is beyond us, working through us, in solidarity with us. Um, that's what I get from her. Yeah, that's excellent. And you mentioned solidarity, and I think that's like such a fundamental part of our, our source of where her wisdom and her strength comes from, right, is that she is in solidarity truly with spiritually and I think relationally with uh, the people who have always been struggling and continue to struggle today. And, you know, for me, I'll speak for myself, but I also, she names this of herself as well, right? She recognizes she's in a privileged position. She is not laboring in a factory 10, 12 hours a day, five, six days a week. Her right. body isn't isn't just weighed down and her, her mind isn't just completely degraded because of her boss or um, because of her working conditions, right? She's a professor. She's a writer. She's a thinker. But she continues to say, if I'm going to have this relative position, of course, she's not the ruling class, right? She's a, you know, I would say like a, a member of the petty bourgeois. As a member of the petty bourgeois, in this situation, I'm going to use everything I have to realize the liberation, not just charitably of people who are worse off than me, but saying, we have a struggle in this together. And I could check out, you know, she could have become this awesome liberal feminist who probably could have made more money, traveled more, you know, had more kind of consumeristic experiences for herself across the world. Um, drink more fucking wine, you know? Because, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, won't, okay, I won't go there. But she says that that my, that my her freedom, I think, uh, is tied up with everyone else's. Yes. And, and yes. yeah, and so that's, I think that solidarity piece grounds her. It's yes. A, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, I do, I, I would love to learn more at some point about actually her, you know, her economic conditions, like the conditions of possibility for her theological world. Because I know that, I mean, um, she is part of like the precarious labor in terms of theological production. I mean, it, she was never given like a proper professorship in mm -hmm. Germany. And she only taught uh, one semester out of the year at Union. It seems like she's going between things. So I, I wonder, yeah, you know, sure. I'm just... You know, like you can't explain away someone's theological position entirely with their biography, but I wonder if there's something in her life where she recognizes the precarity of her 
like that her economic life is a bit precarious obviously not as not like you know the worst of us but yes. um but that tunes her in to movements of solidarity um that's something that i i, I would like to explore yeah, no that's great yeah it would be interesting to you know to hear about the ways she specifically says hey these are the ways i'm alienated right in this yeah, in the system right. of sin uh which i think she moves into this next chapter right these are the ways that i suffer so um, how do other people suffer and how is our suffering uh, related? Because as a mystic, right, especially in The Silent Cry, I remember he talks a lot about suffering. And that's that's a really, actually, oh, I got to return to that book sometime. But. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, no, we should transition to those, the next three chapters, I think, on labor, I think yeah. are really, and what do you think of this? I mean, she just opens up. She has this amazing image. Everyone should get the book just because of the images that she has in there. There's a, it's a woodcock called, called Treadmill um, by Walter Habdank. Um, and it's just, she she uses this as an image for what work life is like. And she says, work is a curse. Um, that's what this image, um, for the majority of the population of the world, work is a curse. Um, and then she, that's kind of her launching point to talk about um, alienated labor yeah, what do you think of that? I, I mean, this is just a really, like, to think about, yeah, what do you think of her, the way she talks about work? All right, so this chapter is really interesting. Uh, so on one hand, let me get a, like, a kind of annoying little critique that I feel like it was just kind of from bad Marxist analysis that it creeps into a lot of Marxist analysis, unfortunately, but I think it's more revisionist and, and it leaves the class relations for the productive forces. It starts to think about the productive forces rather than, again, the relationship between classes. Anyways, so real quick, uh, she emphasizes technology a lot and and capitalists do the, uh, capitalist economists and theorists do this a lot too. And so she does, I think, wrongly suggest throughout this book that in some way, the creation the, um, of human beings uh, that we've created, uh, thing, these things called technology, right? Different kinds of technology actually become our like masters. They start to dominate us. Um, and that's a really popular, like I think misconstrued lie. So early on in the history of capitalism, or actually the, some of the earliest workers, they were, they were working, I think it was like in mills and, and water mills. And they thought that the uh, the mills were their enemies, like literally, like the, the technology. And so they destroyed the mills. Um, and and I can't remember the, the, the group of people that, that did this. But yeah, I, I, I think I think it's not technology that dominates people. Um, I computers, robots, whether you're you know, I was working on a on a grill for a year. Um, the grill and the heat and the grease did not dominate me. It was my fucking boss. Um, <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Right. And exactly. So, so yeah. So I do think that that's a weird thing that kind of I think she's wrong about that, and that creeps in kind of throughout this book. But setting that aside, alienation. Wait, wait. Can I, can I just yeah. point one place where she does that exactly? So it's page 109, um, and she says um, she calls it the ideology of technology in its impotence. It, I'm sorry, in its omni omnipotence and neutrality it has become for me a new demon technology has displaced the god of creation it is the surrogate all-powerful deity whose might no one can escape so it's exactly i mean yeah you nail um, what's interesting to me about this actually is 
is this is where like I feel like she's she's onto something, right? Like, I mean, yeah, like uh, owners oppress uh, labor through new technological form, you know, whatever. Like that, that's true. Um, but the emphasis on it, like you said, you know, like it's, I mean, it's about who owns the, the means of production, you know, like yeah. at the end of the day, it's like, who's owning the stuff are the workers own, you know, like that's what we need to be examining. But the other thing that's interesting here from a theological perspective is that um, it feels like she's a little more wobbly on her theology, on her basically doctrine of God than she presents, because earlier she just wants to be very clear that. Um, we are, as human beings, on the, uh, as co-creators with God, and it is wrong to think about God as somehow other than human beings. Like, her whole thing is that that is a form of idolatry, basically, um, to think about God as other, as not involved. Um, uh, yet yeah, here, yeah. yet here, her traction, her theological traction to make this claim is that technology has displaced the God of creation. Um and it just feels like she's having it both ways. And I understand that, you know, in a lot of ways, we have it both ways with our theology. You know, we use it in one way to say something and another place to say something else. But um, here, it's God is in um, competition with something in creation. And her solution to it is to say that God is other than creation. Um, oh, interesting. Whereas earlier, she says that that's not a good way to think about God. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it feels like this happens throughout. And I'm, I, I think that that's just what I appreciate about her doing this, actually, is it shows that her theology is always in process, depending on the context she's arguing for, which I'm all about. Um, yeah. But at the same way, like sometimes things get a little wobbly in her Marxism in the same way with her theology. One of the things I think that the Marxist tradition has helped me emphasize is um, lack and incompleteness and unfulfillment. Um, and as a mystic, she like wants to just like vomit at any of those words. Like she mm -hmm. emphasizes unity of everything right. and completeness and fulfillment. And I think on one hand, those can be really important and helpful terms or, or words and, and, and visions. But on the other hand, I think it's really, really dangerous to talk about oneness, especially like, or like pure oneness, absolute oneness. Um, right. And so I hear you talking about on one hand, theologically, is there like this absolute oneness with God um, and creation or uh, she engages the, I, I don't know, Bart or I'm sure Bart wasn't the first person, but Bart emphasizes this holy other God. For her, I think her main emphasis is not whether God is holy one or holy other, but more so the importance of relationship um, right. between yes. God and creation and between among creation itself. Yeah, no, um, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, she names Calvin first and then Bart as that, okay. that tradition. Um, and I, I mean, just to, as, as somebody, I don't appreciate Calvin at all. Um, I think Bart's interesting the way that he like messes with Calvin. Um, but I, I, it's interesting to me, and theologically, she equates um, these figures who articulate a transcendent God as a way of saying that she interprets that theological framework in terms of exactly what you're saying, which is a God who is unrelated to creation. So what, God, what it means to say God is holy other or God is transcendent for her is, um, is what it means to say that God is unrelated. Um, and... 
I just think that that's not true because transcendence names a relation. Mm. Um, creator names a relation. So you, you know what I mean? Like you can't have creator without creation. You can't have uh, transcendence without the thing being transcended. So it, it always names a relation in which I don't think she takes seriously enough. Um, but I understand how that is useful, a uh, useful um, angle to go at these figures. Yeah, yeah, that is neat. And, you know, the language that she uses in the Marxian sense is alienation, right? This yes. alienation, this unrelatedness, this separation. And so I hear you, just like hearing you talk, makes me think about this. Um, on one hand, we talk about alienation uh, of, of people, of creation itself, from one another, from ourselves. And, and then on the other hand, theologically, we talk about, uh, you know, does relationship matter? Is it a good thing? Should we value it? What kinds of relationships um, should we pursue? And so with that, let's go ahead and move into um, uh, chapter six. Wait, just one point on, oh, please, uh, yeah. before we move, just chapter five, sorry, real quick. Yeah. Um, I just think she nails this. It, such it's such an important point that she made. She uses the language of transcend transcendence again, which is interesting. It's page fifty nine, where I mean, just talking about like where I just came from in terms of borderland stuff. Um, she says the nation state was a bourgeois invention, whereas the solidarity of workers transcended such boundaries. I mean, this is I think such a helpful correction in terms of uh, the way that uh, nation states and uh, precarious migrant uh, labor function together. So in a lot of ways, people say like, you know, nation states protect the worker, you know, like you need to uh, you need to regulate the workforce so that you can provide benefits or whatever. If, if the workforce is flowing too much, um, that means you someone is always going to like underbid for their labor and undercut somebody else. You know, they're stealing our jobs whole um, lie. But what, what I think is so interesting about what she formulates here is that um, this just observation that worker solidarity is actually what's primary <laughs> in terms of our lives. Our first uh, form of like relationship outside of like kid networks or whatever is like worker relationships, and that there's this innate worker solidarity that we encounter that invites us into other forms of solidarities, and that the border interrupts that. Um, so yeah, I found that to be just a really like helpful uh, helpful intervention in these conversations. Absolutely. And kind of, so, okay, I want to bring some things together. So perhaps on one hand, we may say that alienation, the state of alienation, which in the next chapter she'll say is sin, the state of alienation, this being separated um, and reduced to producing things that you're unrelated to, that you have no concern about, right? We're consuming things that we don't know who touched it, what happened to them, how it got here, um, what it did to the ecosystem, right? Uh, we're just completely alienated from ourselves. We go to work um, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and we produce stuff that doesn't belong to us um, collectively, right. right? So so here's the state of alienation. But uh, interesting, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the word transcendence, and you mentioned worker solidarity, and you talk about borders. So maybe in one way, capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, these are all systems that want to to drag us to the ground and say, this is it, right? This is all that is. There is no 
There is nothing else. You can't, um, not in an escapist way, but um, you can't transcend this. And, uh, and again, transcendence not in an um, unrelated way, but there's a transimmanence, a movement when I say across this this made-up border, right? This this border that doesn't actually exist. You say it exists, but uh, but across this border, we choose solidarity. Um, right. We we yes. commit to one another's well-being, which is going to require land back to indigenous folks. Right? It's going to require uh, addressing kind of cis-heteropatriarchy in in our communities. It's going to require the seizure of land and, and um, the, the means of production by workers. And, and that takes, again, cross-solidarity across these borders, across what the, the systems of domination and destruction, uh, across what the ruling class wants to say is only real, right? So, so anyways, I think there's this potential of, of transcendence that's not escapist, but it's actually, it's necessary. And, it's, and I think she would say is grounded in our togetherness. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it. it, it um, and to, I mean, just maybe to, to point out the way that she doesn't let Christianity off the hook here, because um, this is also at least maybe the chapter right before is where she talks about the pro, uh, the Protestant work ethic or the reformed work worth work ethic um, is what she calls it, where it um, human beings are told that our service to um, the economy is service to God. Mm. Um, and that this system of capital is actually a form of our service to God, and it uh, subordinates all of our other, all the other claims on our lives um, to this work, which is our service to God. And exactly what you're saying, like for her, it feels like um, when language of transcendence does show up, it's a way of saying um, our lives break beyond that system. Our mm-hmm. lives break beyond this Protestant work ethic that tells us that our li- our economic lives are in service to God um, and that there um, is a God of liberation, sets us free from this so that we can be committed to one another in this uh, work of solidarity, which is a work of love of one another. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's an excellent like example of how she's using theological language, uh, theology, like theology must have material consequences for the world. So, you know, yeah. transcendence must be imminence, you know. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, that's a, transcendence. So. That's a great way of putting it. I think for, yeah, I feel like she plays in that water very much. I mean, she's, that's where she's, um, transcendence and imminence seem to be flowing together for her, even though she won't make that explicit, it feels like that's that's what she's doing. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. So in chapter seven, eight, nine, I, I want to talk about chapter six for a second, but chapter seven, eight, nine, we ask three really important questions. These are these questions that really struck me and just grasped me and has made this book so profoundly meaningful for me and, and a book that I want to get into as many hands as I possibly can. Questions about the worker, the community, and creation. But for now, chapter six, before we get there, she has this great section on these two kind of narratives or these these stories. And one says that work is a curse or a punishment. And then, or theologies, right? There's a theology mm-hmm. of the curse and punishment. And then there's a theology of paradise. Right. And yes. she says they're both problematic. Um, they also both need each other if they're going to kind of be helpful in any way. I don't know. Did you have any, did you want to start us off on 
uh, anything in particular around this idea that you read the creation story and then you read the garden story and it's popularly known as the fall. She counters that. She says for her, it's not the fall, but she says there's the fall that's popularly known. Um, yeah. Did you have anything to pop in your head about that? Yeah. I mean, um, actually when I read this chapter, this is not exactly where she's going, but what it, what it reminded me of is actually just like, uh, watching my parents work in their work lives and, and seeing their experience of work and, and what work has done to them. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, so yeah, there's the work as curse, as bad, and then also work as a kind of experience of paradise, of the garden. Both are, both are at play for her. And I mean, just to like, I was just with my parents. Um, my dad had to go into early retirement because of COVID. They wanted him to work in the factory, and the factories worked out and worked out his whole life, and that was bad, and so he wouldn't do that. Anyhow, but just to watch like how the factory has taken life from him, you know, like it has stolen um, his health in in all sorts of ways, mind, body, all of that. And, and, um, so yeah, so there's work as curse, you know, like, like no doubt about it. I mean, um, and at the same time, like, uh, he went to lunch with some of his work buddies, um, because even though he's not there anymore, like they've developed these relationships, these solidarities where they care about each other's lives and are still involved in their, each other's lives. And he wants to be with them, even though they don't work together anymore. I mean, these are like, you know, real relationships of care and attention um, that were, that they were somehow able to, to transcend that experience in the factory floor and form a kind of paradise together. You know, I mean, I don't know exactly yeah, what to call it, but it feels like, he, when I think about my dad in the factory, it feels like he has he operates in that tension between work as curse and also the paradise of loving relationships that are formed because of that work. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that. So I get up at 3.30 in the morning and I got like four 12 to 13 hour shifts um, a week. And recently, you know, the working conditions for me, especially like this last like year and a half, have just been so demoralizing and degrading and there have been uh work breaks where i'm sobbing in my car and and i'm mm. i'm wondering i'm like is there is there a way out do yeah. is there any kind of future where i am not this depressed where i am not this crushed where i am not this person who i currently am right I'm, i want to be someone else and but i can't get my head off my fucking pillow, right? Right. I, I've never experienced this kind of anxiety and the stress and depression um, before around work. But there was this moment where I shared with the coworker, like we're on the floor, we're doing our thing, and I said, and they said something. I think they asked, "Hey, are you okay?" And it's like it's like four thirty in the morning, and <laughs> and I, and so in a moment of vulnerability, I was like, you know what? Mm. I'm depressed. Mm. <laughs> and this was a couple of months ago, and. And she replied, she was like, uh, something to the effect of, oh, come on, you know, it's not like we're in a sweatshop. And I was like, holy shit. When someone says, like, I'm struggling, like, this is, this is really degrading. Or actually, I think leading up to that, we were, we were both sharing about how degrading and how ridiculous 
um, our our work life uh, was yeah. at that you know in that morning together, and so there was like a sense of solidarity, and that's what led me to share. Um, that I was, I was really struggling right. and she's like, well, Hey, well, at least we're not in a sweatshop. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that stems from this popular belief that why does work suck? Right. There, there's the question, right? Cause yeah. a lot of workers, whether you ideologically are right wing, you're liberal, or you are more like socialist and communist, people ask that same question. Why is this happening? Right. It's this human question. And one of the popular theological responses has, is, is because, well, because it's our fault. You know, mm-hmm. We sinned. Yeah, right? it's the and fall. Exactly, yeah. the fall. Right. And if yeah. you want to get super patriarchal, well, it was the woman, you know, mm-hmm. you. So, so I think we have this unfortunate theological tradition that's very popular. Perhaps if I engaged friends and family uh, from my upbringing, right, growing up in white evangelicalism, and I asked, but why is it this way? And I think that it would not be surprising to hear, well, Adam and Eve sinned. And in this verse, it tells us that they're going to struggle. And so that's why, and then she says, there's the work is a curse theology, but then there's that that comes with escapism. Mm -hmm. That's why you're going to suffer all your life, but hey, we will get to heaven and we'll get out of this world. So so don't worry about fighting the boss. Don't worry about fighting landlords or whatever. Just be grateful for what you have. Be a good heterosexual and a nuclear family and try and climb the ladder. And eventually you'll die and you'll get to go to heaven. Anyways, yeah, I think, I think those were really interesting theological insights um, that plague our communities. This idea that work is solely a curse. And, and actually, I think both Zerla and myself, and I think um, you as well, we would all agree that work is not naturally a curse. There's nothing natural about suffering because of work. And, and as you alluded with, your, with the story with your father, there's a potential for paradise. There's a potential for beauty. Right. And, so that's, and that's what I think she's going to get at in these next couple chapters. Work should bring life. It should bring love. It should bring intimacy. It should develop us, right? Rather than the fall into punishment, we should become responsible, accountable, and, and be developed people. So Yeah, no, I think that's a really good, yeah, that, yeah. Um, well, first, I mean, I don't know how you make it through your shitty work life. I mean, that seems horrible. Like, just, yeah. <laughs> just to say, like, um, I'll say this. Yeah. Um, relationships. Like, yeah. people have the, have been the only um, thing that have gotten me through this last year and a half. Um, so, and, and I'm sure other people listening in have had similar experiences as well. Maybe they can attest to that too. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who, um, a year or two ago, they had bouts of uh, of wanting to commit suicide. Mm. And I was talking to them um, on, I called them <laughs> like one morning, like 4 a.m. on my way to work. I'm just checking in. And they were like, you know what? What got through me was like, you know, the people who told me they love me, it was true. Mm-hmm. So, so I do think that there's this deep capacity for our relationships and our care for one another. And, and that sense of solidarity, that's how we get through this. And then we have to fight, right? We don't just kind of roll on our backs and say, well, that's just how the things are. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, yeah, I think you're exactly, I mean, that's all we got. I, it reminds me of this line from um, uh, this monk that I like a lot, Sebastian Moore. He says, we, we must look forward to the moment where all the mysteries of God will be revealed in our brother or sister's hand. 
Um, and the sense of like, that's, I mean, that's what we want. That's what we need is this offer of solidarity, um, this mutual care that is God's care. You know, like, um, I mean, I think that would probably resonate with what Zoe is saying, um, very different theological register, but but this sense of uh, what we got are open hands towards one another where we can bear this weight together. Yeah, and whether it's whiteness, right, the ideology or masculinity or religious kind of exceptionalism, whether you're, you know, whatever kind of religious perspective you're coming from, or um, just the habits and practices that capitalism imposes upon us. It wants to alienate us. It wants to to rip us apart. It rejects community. Um, It rejects kind of solidarity. Um, You're just an individual or within a nuclear family. And, And I think today, especially in the U.S., we are seeing a very, very large community who um, uh, of people, 330 million, who have continually over over centuries, we're being ripped apart from our communities, and this deep alienation leads us to very very dangerous places of being. Where some folks are saying, you know what, I'm so fucking alienated, I don't know why, I'm gonna take a fucking gun and go slaughter people, right, um, at a at yeah. a Whole Foods or something, yeah. or. Some some folks are very very alienated, and they're like, you know, why am I so lonely and depressed with my life? Oh, it's um black people. Oh, it's immigrants, mm-hmm. right? Or it's trans persons. Mm-hmm. And so I think that deep that state of alienation, you know, that um a society that's dangerously alienated, a society that is very vulnerable to fascism. Um, yeah. To, very vulnerable to uh, forums and organization of violence that that wreaks havoc. Yeah, uh, just to talk about fascism, this is not in this book, but in some of her other books, she she coins this phrase or this word called Christofascism as what she sees in the United States specifically, um, that this combination of more or less Protestantism and fascism um, as this toxic environment that alienates us all and creates this uh, political disenfranchisement that enables uh, horrible political leaders that mm-hmm. violate the community. So just a flag, like fascism, I think, is on the table for her in very real ways. Yeah. Um, but just to just to like go back to the chapter, and maybe transition to the others uh, coming up is like her vision. I mean, she reads Song of Songs as like labor text. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's so amazing. So, you know, she offers this uh, Song of Songs 7. She concludes this chapter um, as like, this is a story of, of work, of what it means to labor together. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, you know, to hear those words as uh what god wants for us in terms of our labor and the how sensuous it is you know i mean it's just um yeah so it's not the fault i mean she's not saying like oh my gosh you know uh work life was good in the garden they were like tilling and keeping the earth and the fall happened and now like you're saying you know work is like shitty and it's a curse and we got to deal with it and hopefully at some point God will free us in heaven. Um, no, she's saying like, actually, no, let's read the whole text here and let's read Song of Songs as this vision for gardening and garden as work, um, uh, offer of what our work life can be now. 
Yeah, and, and you know, there might be a t uh, this hesitancy or this this tendency that emerges that says, you know what, capitalism is just obsessed with work, right? And therefore, we should just like reject work. Like the the goal is to not work. But it's interesting because that's not her. Right. That, she does not come close to that. And nope. I think perhaps that's her understanding of nature itself. That mm -hmm. she uh, theologically, and I think we could also just kind of in an observation, we see that creation is laboring and so for her the question is not whether we work or not work it's more so what are the consequences of work what uh, so let's go ahead and check out this next chapter um, her first question is how does work affect the worker it's not a question popularly asked today yeah, um, right. uh, you know I'm actually curious yeah as a minister as a pastor when you think about um, the friends and community in your congregation, or uh, and maybe you don't want to go there, but um, just in general, how have you kind of engaged and, and thought about, um, or how have you seen that this might be an important question for the people that you love and that you're doing ministry with? Yeah, no, that's a really good, yeah, what work does to the worker. Um, I remember, I mean, let me just I mean, there's all kinds of ways I can go. Let me just tell this one story that yeah. all of a sudden has come to my mind recently. Um, but this was from, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Um, we, our church, would do um, set up meals on the side of the highway here where a bunch of people were living in the forest, in the woods. Um, we developed relationships with them. And they're, you know, we're like, let's have like a community meal. So we helped facilitate that and ate with them. And a couple of them, you know, started coming to to church, you know, we're, this was not like an evangelistic thing, you know, this is, this is yeah. us like, you know, hanging out and eating food together, fellowshipping, developing community there. But a couple of them are like, oh, wow, like, can we join you for worship? I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. You know, like, don't feel like you're obligated, but of course. And so um, I started picking up a couple of people and this one guy, um, you know, on our way to, on our way to church, pick them there, pick up, it's behind the Walmart, it's behind the wall, the woods behind Walmart is where it was his yeah. home. And I uh, picked him up, and this one Sunday, um, he was just like, oh, I always forget, you all are weird about tithes, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's not offered every Sunday. I'm like, well, you know, we pay our bills once a month, so we collect tithes and offerings once a month to pay the bills. Uh, he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, right. Is this that one Sunday? And I'm like, yeah, it is. And he's like, okay, I brought, I brought my tithe. And he had this big plastic bag of, like, mostly coins that I knew that he got from like flying a sign, you know, yeah. on the, in the median there. And I was just like, hey, that's awesome. Like, I'm so glad you want to contribute to our community. But like, you know, you don't need to do that. Um, you got, you know, like you need that money for whatever. And and, um, and and so I was just, you know, like I felt bad. I felt bad. Um, like our church at the end of the day to pay our bills doesn't doesn't need that, that his money. He needs it more. Um, in my mind, I'm telling myself this. And then finally, like, he just like, he's like, pastor, are you telling me that my money isn't good enough for God? Mm. Oh, and shit. I, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, that's what I, I'm not. And I'm just like, no, that's not. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I did not mean to tell you that. And he's just like, he's like, it's all right. I, I'm just letting you know that I got my money for tithe for Sunday. And I'm like, okay. Um, and I, I that, that story is just such a, 
I realized that my work as a pastor, what it means is that I am involved somehow for my own livelihood in all of that labor, that that labor is not separate from mine, you know, that and I can never imagine myself paying my bill, you know, because like some of that money goes to my salary. Um, and I can never imagine my work as separate from his work. Um, and that our work is bound up together. So I that yeah. So I think about that in terms of like other people at church, you know, whose jobs are not necessarily um, are different than that, um, and who make more money than 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 he does. Um, but the sense that like I am involved in all of their labor, I cannot think about my material life without thinking about their work lives, everyone's work lives. Yeah, that's excellent. It makes me think of two things that pop in my mind. One, basically, one of the things that Zerla wants to emphasize is how contribution and participation shapes people. And it can, participation and contribution, action, like work, our labor, um, our tasks, our jobs, it can be life-giving or it can be death-dealing. And it makes me think about how I read this book, I don't know if it was written by or about um, uh, Cesar Chavez, who was a labor organizer in the Southwest um, around the civil rights era and a little bit after actually. But anyways, there's a story where he was doing some organizing and there was, they were taking dues to be in the union, right? And, you know, we have to understand that the folks that they were organizing had nothing absolutely fucking nothing and there was this story where there was a guy who was going to the grocery store to buy food for his family in the grocery store Caesar catches up to him and says you have to pay your dues and this it sounds it sounds incredible right the guy mm-hmm. has to feed themselves the family has to feed themselves they don't have any other money Right. Right. And and he says, listen, you can either pay your dues and try and win a much better situation for you and your family. Or you can go spend what little you have and and get all of the food that you need tonight. And it's such a it just sounds like such a brutal ask. Mm. But I think that, you know, when I think about dues and when I think about such a um, like a sacrifice that a family, you know, that, that's being asked, um, that a community uh, that, that's being asked of a community. It's not just about the money. Right. It's about shaping us. It's, it's um, how does our work or our contributions, whether that's financial. But but again, I, I really want us to think about the actual kinds of work that we do in the world. How does it shape us? Does it develop us? Does it create a sense of solidarity? Right. Does it give us dignity? Does it um, does it create room for creativity and and critical reflection, or does it do the opposite? Does it kind of shut us down? Does it make us I don't know robots, right? Who are just just getting crushed over a grill where we don't need to be creative, we don't need to participate, we don't need to contribute because our bosses say we don't have the capacity to contribute or we're, you know, we're not allowed to do that. Right. Um, anyways, that's, that's yeah. what popped in my head, that, that story about from Cesar Chavez. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess one of the things that I, I think is important just in terms of your question about my church life and how this relates to this is that I, I think um, the temptation is to think at least in terms of 
my role as a pastor is somehow um, as not uh, implicated in the economic relations of the people who I minister to. Um, but what that story does to me, and it feels like what the um, what this story of the deuce with, Ch- with Chavez does, is it shows that like uh, money is a, also a form of solidarity, um, of commitment to one another to create a world together, and that like all of our economic lives uh, matters in the creation of that world together. Um, which I think relates to Sola here in, in this chapter. She has this great line about, and again, talking about how work is also good. Um, Ch- chapter seven or chapter eight? Oh, mm, chapter seven. Sweet. Are we in chapter seven? Are we in chapter? Oh eight? yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter seven, eight, nine. Okay. Um, she she talks about how um, God has created. This is page eighty nine. God has created people to be creators and to realize their humanity through work. Um, that like it, it it's part of what it means to be a human creature that we uh, that we create in the same way that God creates. You know, like it's this analogous relationship, um, and that it's an expression of who we are. And therefore, she will say, um, you can't think about work as just like curse, as mm-hmm. in it's separate from who I am. It's just this thing that I do to pay the bills. Uh, she says, she says, like no, it's it's it contributes to who we are as a as a as a people yes yeah and that's i think what socialism and communism is about um right part is that our labor power of the working class is being stripped from us right Um, yes it does not belong to us that's alienation right um everything we produce doesn't belong to us our time no longer belongs to us and i think that a fight for a world in which the labor power of the people belongs to the people themselves means that rather than you know using our productive capacity, our physical, mental, spiritual capacities to produce power and wealth for fewer and fewer people, these people called capitalists, but also if we want to think about in a different sense, imperialist nations, right? Because um, certain nations can target whole regions of the world, like the U.S. But there needs to be a seizure of the means of the production and a, a seizure back of, uh, of our time and of our own labor so that we can work for good. And, and that's I think that's uh, one of the most fundamental basic points of this whole book is, is that the Protestant work ethic rids us of the sense of good work, right? Work is just work. Work is good in itself. And she wants to say, hell no. Um, work uh, can be really degrading, but it should be really life-affirming. It should be developing of the individual, right? Good for the person. And then in chapter eight, she talks about work should be good for community. It should develop. Yes. It reminds me of that story that you shared about your your father. It should develop solidarity, develop togetherness. Um, and they did it under capitalist relations, but I think kind of probably in resistance to that, right? Right. The sense of humanness. Every time I go to work, I'm exploited, I'm oppressed here, but but I, at least I know my my coworker here. And we actually share shared an intimate part of our lives the other day, right? There's a sense of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, just in that chapter, I think the interesting, she gives this long quote of Marx along these lines, um, where Marx, I mean, it's not just, uh, it's not just, she has like a moral uh, impetus for this conversation, right? She's saying like, we... Like, this is what God wants us to do, whatever. 
whereas Marx, it's almost like it's an anthropological statement. So um, at the end of this quote, he talks about how what work is supposed to do, it's page 95, work is supposed to do, um, I'll just read the last sentence from this long quote. In my expression of my life, I would have fashioned your expression of your life, and thus in my own activity have realized my own essence, my human, my communal essence. Um, there's this sense that like what work does is it fulfills our communal human nature, our communal human essence, um, which, yeah, I just find to be like a really powerful description of of what we were, what we are meant to be in our work lives together. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So yeah, uh, so moving along, I, I, honestly, I could sit in these three questions yeah. for an entire <laughs> podcast or a series, but um, so we have, how does work affect the worker, the, the individual person? Um, the second question is, how does work affect the community, right. um, which you just engaged there? And then the third question is how does work basically, she says there's a natural dimension of work. How does work, human labor, relate to creation and the rest of the planet? So, I mean, to, to start us off, she, she, she mentions, and, and this is all throughout Marxist literature as well, but there's a bond between human work and nature. And we might even um, easily see it kind of all throughout the, uh, the creation stories as well. Right, this this emphasis on keeping and tilling the earth. There's this bond between what humanity is to do and how it's to relate to themselves, to other than human creatures, to the land, the sea, the sky. Um, and for uh, in Marxist tradition, we talk about the transformation of nature, which I actually think goes both ways. When we relate and we work the ground, right? Whether you're doing gardening or whether you're um, even working with materials, I don't know, in some kind of factory, it's also shaping us, right? There's this interrelatedness even within the objects and the materials that we work with. So we, so on one hand, we are nature, right? But like we shape nature and nature's sh shaping us. But there is this powerful, like humans do transform nature mm -hmm. um, into different kinds of objects. Um, yeah. Just to say, the theological connection she makes with that is uh, um, Romans 8, in this image of all creation groaning, um, and that we are part of that. And she just has, uh, but the sense of like mutual transformation, um, her line is, from the throes of labor, something new will be born, which I just, which I just love. Um, so yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a groaning that feels like a kind of death and travail, um, but is also a birth pain. That's something new. It's a call to hope that we will be transformed, mutually transformed through this labor together. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe it's just my reading of this chapter and I want to hear your thoughts, but, and it's actually, I love it. I love it about this chapter is that, okay, you get to a, the third question and it seems like, okay, now we're going to talk about solely ants and, bugs and trees you know and and that's yeah. what the whole chapter but what we end up talking about is colonialism and imperialism right you know she says basically listen if you have it's like her it's like her last like millionth cry if yeah. you care about the planet if you if you pretend that you're a creation theologian 
you have got to understand imperialism and colonialism in our world today. You have to understand what capitalism is doing to not only the masses of humans, but to the planet. And um, so for me, my understanding is what she would say is like good work must be anti-colonial. Yeah. You cannot you cannot be the reproduction of colonialism in this world and pretend to give two shits about God's beloved creation. Right. Um, hostility to humans is inseparable from hostility to the planet. Yep. Um, and and that and she talks about how we are taught to consume and destroy and violate the well-being of our neighbors, of ourselves, and the planet. And this normalization, this process of normalization, this capitalist ideology, um, which I think is also inseparable from whiteness or uh, patriarchy or kind of androcentrism, all these things, um, we just consume without thought of who produced this and, and what happened to their bodies and how this impacted the, the land or the ecosystems or the region of the world. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, yeah, the title of the chapter is Work as Reconciliation with Nature. And yeah. It, yeah, you could read that as being like, oh, yeah, we're going to go out and like have a retreat in the mountains and enjoy. Exactly. But then she's just like, all right, let's talk about what's going on in Nicaragua. You know, yes. I mean, it's just her mind. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a it's a kind of like global brilliance that is refuses it refuses like the whole like not in my backyard approach to mm. economic life. You know, like there's no like, okay, we need to buy local now. It's like, no, yes. our world is like, we live in the West. Uh, our economic relations are primarily exploitative. Who are they exploiting? And let's take that seriously. Yeah, brilliant. I don't yeah. care where they are. You know, she's like, I don't care where they are. Not in my backyard. No, that's not, it's not like they're across the street. We're going to Nicaragua now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's because she understands that you can't have, you know, she actually mentioned salvation in this chapter. You can't have salvation in your own place um, for a long time, right? You, um, and until you realize salvation everywhere. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, for her, actually, there's this part where she talks about salvation uh, as the transformation of structural organization of work for the ending of exploitation and alienation for the meeting of people's needs and the restoring of relationship between humans and non-humans. So just want to throw that out there um, to wrap up that chapter. Beautiful uh, part yes. of the conversation. Yeah. And uh, to wrap this up, we just, uh, there's actually, there's actually three, yeah, three more chapters. Um, <laughs> there's a great chapter on sex and sexuality. Uh, I, just real quick, I just to name, you know, she makes this basic uh, claim that, you can't understand sex and sexuality in a world without understanding how a society is economically and politically alienated and exploited, right? Yeah. Capitalism affects sex and sexuality. If you want to take it seriously, if you want to engage, if you want to transform it, you also have to understand how work life is shaping sex and sexuality. Any yeah. Thoughts? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this is just, uh, I mean, it's just she goes deeper, deeper, and deeper into like how capitalism affects not um, all of our lives, you know, our work lives, and how like the workplace, um, whatever is shaping the workplace is also shaping our bedrooms or something like that, mm -hmm. and how like sec our, like how sexuality, sexual desire is also it cannot be I should say it this way cannot be separated from uh, the way that uh, capitalist forms us as desiring machines to borrow like a Deleuzian phrase um 
that that we are um, yeah that well I mean this is her language uh, capitalism com commodifies all of our relationships including our sexual lives including mm. including our sexual relationships um, yeah 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 that chapter is powerful and it, it would be interesting you know for listeners to reflect on how capitalism might have actually shaped their own sexuality as well. Um, and their own sexual uh, desires and interests and, and practices and habits. Um, and yeah, so and so moving on to this uh, second to last chapter, uh, one of the things that has been on my mind recently is that, you know, there's this kind of growing trend of anti-capitalism, right? Uh, a lot of folks are like, well, I'm just broadly anti-capitalist or they're broadly anti-imperialist. And they, but they don't say, so they say what they want to be free from, but they don't say what they want to be free for, mm, um, like freedom yeah. in the positive, liberation in the positive, um, not just liberation in the negative. And, or, or yeah, they'll say anti-capitalist, but they won't say this is the method or this is the, the way that I think ha we have to do so that we can actually win another world, right? Um, whatever that actually other world is. And in my, I did a kind of like a self-critical, um, self-critique episode, a couple episodes on my first two years of the podcast. And one of the things was that early on, I was talking about winning a better world, you know, broadly, generally, whatever that means, right? Um, and, and I wasn't naming um, either, you know, socialism or communism. And that's why I've moved to a place where like, you know, it's really, really important, you know, maybe, maybe you're in rural Kentucky or in Denver, Colorado, um, maybe you're in a, uh, an evangelical church or um, uh, an Episcopal community. It's really important to be explicit about your politics, to not have shame, um, to not be afraid of saying, well, um, I can't be honest about what I really am. Maybe I'll just kind of tiptoe and say I'm anti-capitalist because we have to start articulating the dream. And this is what this chapter is about. Mm -hmm. the, what's the shared vision? What's the shared dream um, that we're pursuing? And for me, I, I'm a communist. All right. Um, and so, uh, and so I need to continue to articulate what I want us to be free for and not just what we want to be free from. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's a great way to talk about this chapter. And I mean, for her, the what we're free for is this um, mutual vulnerability yes. and mutual dependence, mutual aid, uh, which creates the possibility for a relationship. Um, and for her, that is like has everything to do with just everyday trust <laughs> mm. um, with people um, that also has to do with the trust of um, our sexual lives. Um, I mean, the chap the title of the chapter is Ecstasy and Trust. Um, that That is a form of justice. You know, that all mm. of these, all of like, these conversations about vulnerability, trust, sexuality are about just relationships. Yes. Um, the, the book that actually came to my mind as I was reading this is um, Adrian Marie Brown's book, um, Pleasure Activism. And I think that would be like a really interesting conversation partner with Sola here in terms of, you know, because she's very much talking about what you're, inter what you're saying too, is like, what are we, what's the world we want? Marie, uh, Adrian Marie Brown names that in terms of like, you know, pleasure act activism, this good life um, has to be part of our activism of what we want in a very similar way to what Zoe is outlining here. 
Oh, neat, neat. I had a friend who's recommended that book to me before. Um, but anytime, and, and this is actually a perfect part of the conversation because I have this hesitancy. I'm like, okay, pleasure. Okay, is this a very liberal, neoliberal, like self-egoistic consumption of a commodity, right? How can mm -hmm. I just seek my own pleasure of whatever it is, right? As this commodity, how can I possess it? But um, Zerla and and perhaps um, Marie, or what, what's the name again? Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian Marie Brown, perhaps might say, I often engage the book sometime, but um, might say something similar in that there's this push against, you know, this push away. Chapters 11 and 12 talk about sexuality in a really, uh, really great way. I love Zerla's emphasis on moving beyond two things, repression, okay, which is obviously the right-wing patriarchal, repression of sexuality and then on the other hand she wants to push far beyond the permissiveness the the mere just permission of individual sexual act or identity you know whatever it is mm -hmm. so yeah did you have any uh did that stick with you at all about this uh this engaging sexuality beyond both permission and repression yeah i mean it feels like that yeah that you're naming that exactly i I, um, yeah, I mean, so for her, this sense of a, um, what, this commitment to love the world, to work into love has everything to do with our work and our loves, you know? And I mean, she's really taking that seriously. And what, um, she wants to say is that in the same way that it feels like what she's saying in the same way that there's this sense of like work as being cursed and part of the fall, Therefore, we got to just like stick it out in our work lives. It's going to be shitty and there's no way to invite God into the conversation or redemption or anything. Um, in the same way, sexual lives are repressed and um, don't really talk. About, they're not part of the conversation in terms of what, it mean, what we want for this world together that we're making. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's a really good conclusion to this argument that's been taking place throughout the book. The one thing that I wonder about is... In the same way that she, it feels like for her, she thinks that creation, the way that nature works, is it's there's a teleology towards it, like um, like it's it's heading in a certain direction, and we need mm -hmm. to get on board, and that direction is towards justice. It feels like that's the same thing in terms of sexuality for her. So, the less repressed it is, the more it'll introduce you towards uh, justice work in the world. And I'm just not sure about both of those things. <laughs> I'm not as teleological in terms of my understanding of creation that like, you know, I mean, I, I'm i much more uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates than Martin Luther King Jr. in that line. So Martin Luther King Jr. says, you know, the arc of the moral universe beds towards justice. Ta-Nehisi Coates comes along and says, uh, no, the arc of the moral universe bends towards chaos. Like, I feel like there's something to that in terms of uh, our experience of the world and what the world, the world needs to be made. It's not, mm. it doesn't make us. Um, mm -hmm. In the same way, I think what her, all of her conversations about sexuality, I, I'm, I'm just, it feels like they can go both ways. Whereas she thinks that non-repressed sexuality leads towards justice. And I feel like, I mean, I've just seen that go yeah. both ways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I guess in my reading, I, I did hear her say on one hand that 
she wants us to move beyond the whole repression thing, right? Uh, which probably the vast majority of her readers and uh, listeners of this conversation have really strove to push against that whole uh, right-wing shit. Um, on the other hand, I think she wants to say that it's not just about individual just freedom to consume sex and sexuality. Um, that sexuality, just like work, and they're actually not very, they're not separable. Right. Sex That's and sexuality yep. perhaps is a form of labor. It's a form of work. And work and labor might also be an expression of sexuality. Sexuality is broader than just orgasms for her, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think for, you know, definitely for myself and I think for you as well. So it's sexuality is about more than fucking. Um, and, and yet um, sexuality for the right is primarily about reproduction and using a Marxist analysis, I think sex and sexuality is for uh, uh, is used for class reproduction um, and class exploitation. But then liberals talk about sex and sexuality as just something to be consumed for your individual pleasure. And and I think again at the at the heart of this whole book, she wants us to think about good work and maybe we'll talk about you know I, I've been I thought about good love, making good love but maybe even good sex and good sexuality, right? She wants us to make good love. Um, she wants us to realize a world where we can have good work um, and think about how does, you know, call it work, call it sex, call it sexuality, whatever it is, call it love. How does that affect the people, the individual? How does that affect the community? How does that affect the beloved um, uh, community? And so at the very end, uh, you know, she's saying, she's like, I could have, basically, I have a, have all the love in the world but it should i liked her language uh it should make us more disturbable you know making love should lead us it should transform us it should lead us to making justice love should move us transform us and compel us to transform the world so she she names the the neoliberalization the failure of the kind of 60s and 70s feminist movement um and that it became about individual or commodification of, of pleasure and, and sex and rather than political and economic revolution. So anyways, yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. Did you want to say anything about that last part? Yeah, I like, I like it when she says that stuff. So, for example, I mean, she says, you know, whatever destroys mutuality kills ecstasy as well. I mean, there's the sense of like the, the, the moral imperative is the same in work and in love, and both are mutually involved, and that is um, mutuality. There's this sense of mutual care um, that that needs to be central to it all. Every once in a while, she talks about she she doesn't talk about the moral imperative. She just says this is the way things are, and I just oh, and I want to be like no. There's a so like you know on page right before that 134, um, she says love making frees us to understand our want. And I want to be like, I mean, maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know like uh, we need some, we need some, we need some analysis here on exactly, yeah, it's, I, that doesn't have to be, that's not necessarily the case. Mm. Uh, I find her more compelling when she has things like, well, you know, this commitment to mutuality in these relations enables us to understand our wants or something like that. That's helpful. Yeah. So you're, 
do I hear you like kind of resisting and critiquing any kind of deterministic or if yes, you exactly. if you do X, Y, and Z, then we'll start the alphabet over again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. Especially when and I don't use this word lightly, like when we think about revolutionary transformation on the world, making revolution. And I and, and I get, you know, making making love, making revolution, these things that you'll see them on a Pepsi commercial. Um, but for me as a Maoist, as a revolutionary communist, uh, we have to think about how we can actually realize um, new worlds where work can be full of goodness, where we can, where our work develops us individually and it blesses our neighbors and our family and our friends. And it also uh, regenerates the diversity and, and expands perhaps the biodiversity of the world. Um, we want a world where we can make love and do good work, but making love should lead us to making revolution. And that's not a really fun thing to think about, I would say, but it is something I think that we should definitely take seriously. And I think she would invite, she really wants us to take seriously as well. Yeah, I guess this is what I'm imagining now that you you put it that way. I I think what I, this what so reading this chapter, um for her makes a lot like i i understand like it's powerful and i and i'm i think that it her word is very significant at the same time i can i've in um activist circles there's what has been called the the mactivist have you heard about the mactivist yeah tell me basically i mean basically it's um you know um men who take advantage of patriarchal power in activist circles who use lines like this to get their Mac on, basically. You know, like it's this sense of, um, so activist circles where everything is just assumed that we're a community of care, mutuality, whatever. And um, I mean, I've I've only uh, experienced men acting, cisgendered men um, acting this way, um, where that basically becomes a field for um, self-gratification, using others for the same sort of like, um, sexual exploitation that they would experience outside of those circles. So, so, so that's why I'm saying like there needs to be some kind of moral imperative, which she she hints at. I mean, she says, but she doesn't say all the time. Um, mm. So, just the sense of like, hey, you know, free expression of love in these circles is going to lead to the revolution. I would be like, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> I think well, we need to think a little bit more about um, the kind of expression this is taking in our communities. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's very uh, in line with, you know, Zerla. I think that's in line with more radical Christianities. I think that's in line with revolutionary communism. That's that endless self-criticism, both yeah. of ourselves and of one another. And so I think that is definitely something that we should always bring with us in our spiritual and political uh, spaces. So. Isaac Vijegas, seriously, thank you so much for chatting with me and spending this time engaging the text and then bringing your your spiritual and your, your again, your political and social depth, um, sharing your wisdom in and, and this conversation. Really appreciate you, buddy. Oh, yeah, no, thank you. And um, yeah, thanks for wanting to talk to me about this book. It's so great. Can I close us with the last line of this book? I mean, it's just so amazing. Take I it away. so much. Okay, here it is. This is how she concludes. The God who created the universe, including our planet, and who delivered us from slavery 
is the same God who raises the dead to new life, so that we who were dead and without hope might become resistors and lovers of life. Lover of the living is an old name for God. So shall it be our name forevermore.